Hey everyone, welcome back to the WYL Take Ownership Podcast. We're all about taking ownership of your mental, your economics, and your community. I'm joined today by Jessica Santana and Evan Robinson of America on Tech. Um, folks at home, stay tuned. I got Evan, I got Jess that are about to swivel on their cameras and join us in a second. Um, but we, we're, gonna, we're gonna dig even deeper. You know that a lot of their work leans right into black and brown communities. Um, and, you know, at, at full disclosure, you know, I was awarded by them for the work I've been doing in tech um, two years ago, two short years ago, um, as an innovator and disruptor um, in the technology space as an entrepreneur. And that award was given to me by at the time, New York on Tech and NBC Universal. And now Amer they're America on Tech because Jess and Evan just keep growing. So I'm super hyped to have you guys here today. It's always uh, great energy when I see you guys. And so Thanks for joining in the WIL Take Ownership podcast and GA. Thanks for having us, Ofo. We're really happy to be here. Yes, thanks, Ofo. Thanks for having us. Great to see you. And hey, Tom. Hey. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, you guys, people at home, uh, these two are in Los Angeles. They're in New York City. You know, we're just, we're just bridging the gap right now, doing it digitally like we've all been doing the last several months. Um, but I, I, wanna, I wanna talk to you guys first to learn how did America on Tech start? Like, what was the impetus or the nugget for the idea? Um, and and I'll throw it to you first, Jess. How did how did uh, uh, America on Tech start? Yeah, so America on Tech really came from a place of wanting to serve. Uh, what we do is, I should start off with that. We're an early pipeline um, technology talent accelerator that's on a mission to prepare the next generation of technology leaders. And we could talk more about what that looks like. Um, later on, but you know, before um, America on Tech started, Evan and I, we share very similar educational backgrounds, personal backgrounds. We're both from East New York, Brooklyn, born and raised, super proud of that. And we were also the first people in our family to go to college, obtain a degree in technology, start our careers in the industry. And I think it became very clear to us as first generation um, in our family to go off into the private sector and work in a space like tech that um, not many of us uh, look like us on our tech teams, right? Oftentimes for me, I was the only woman, the only person of color. I think for Evan, he was oftentimes the only uh, man of color on his teams. And I think that informed us of, um, obviously there was a huge gap between where we were in our careers and then also, you know, where we were from. And a lot of times when we talk about talent in this space, we talk about it from a deficit mindset. Like like, oh, there's not enough uh, talent. You know, we can't find the talent. And I think for me and for Evan, having grown up in Brooklyn, we have access to so many talented black and brown people and black and brown young people specifically that we couldn't fathom the idea that um, we were not being seen. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, one uh, Labor Day weekend on Starbucks napkins in 2014, Evan and I crafted a master plan uh, to bring technology education to students in Brooklyn New York. We started off with a pilot of 20 students that year and then um, from there we've just kept growing the organization. We used to be Brooklyn on tech, we go to New York on tech, and now we're America on tech with offices in New York and LA. Have learned a tremendous amount of things about what tech looks like, um, not only in New York City, but in Los Angeles and how, um, you know, the landscape just changes, the technology ecosystem and landscape just changes based on geography. Um, I'm happy to share more about that later on in the presentation, but that's our origin story. Um, and it's been a tremendous six years doing this work. 
No, that, that's truly amazing work that you guys have been doing. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I've gotten, you know, intro, um, introduced to a lot of the, whether it's the students that you guys work with or invited to just come and see them, you know, kind of move from the program and go into the next stage of their lives and they get their awards and all kinds of stuff. You know, um, Evan, to you, you know, what were some of the early stories that you saw that made you realize, no, this is really working. Like the time and commitment we're putting in is paying off for these, for these kids. Yeah, I think that's a great question, um, Ovo. Um, you know, to kind of piggyback first off of Jessica and then segue into that, you know, America on Tech really came as a passion and labor of love. Like, well, before we started, I was literally walking around in neighborhoods handing out flyers for students to apply to the program. I was going to local high schools. I was going to barber shops. I was going to the check cash in place. I was going to laundry mats. I was getting into arguments with people. I was putting up signs, the whole nine. And so it was really a grassroots um, effort that really led up to this national organization that we're leading now. Mm -hmm. And to kind of talk about, you know, some of the, the, the pivotal moments of like seeing success very early on was, you know, we always, it's, it's not um, unknown that a lot of most people are just consumers of technology and not a lot of creators of technology. And that was one of the biggest gaps that we wanted to address for the students that we were working with was like, hey, you're on, you're on Instagram all day. You're on, you're on Twitter all day. You're on Facebook. You're on, you know, you're on all these social media sites. You're on this website. You're accessing information from here. But how about we show you how to actually be the creator of these, of these, of of everything, right, of anything that you want to create. And the aha moments, I would say, initially was when we seen students successfully completing the projects that we had in class. So we are a project-based kind of course. And so when we seen students initially um, successfully completing the projects, that was the first green light of like, okay, we're on to something and we can actually show, uh, train students and give them the skills that they need to actually develop awesome products. And then I would say the second phase is when Jessica and I started to realize, okay, instead of just only focusing on like producing portfolio work, how about we take it up a notch and say, how do we now get the students paid opportunities? And these came in the forms of internships and apprenticeships. And then we started to see our students being successful in internships and jobs. And then that was the big, you know, green light for us to show that like, what we're doing can actually have a lasting and long impact on the lives of the students that we wanted to, to serve. And so I would say, you know, Jessica and I all the time get emails from alumni and current students are just saying thank you. And I would say out of all, you know, the stressful times that come along with like being a founder of an organization, that's that small thank you that you get in an email or in a text message from a student that is either going through your program currently or an alumni of your program makes a world of a difference, especially as you're navigating and growing your organization. No, for sure. I, I love hearing the origin stories, you know, the, the imagery of the grassroots piece going to different doors, going to the check cash in place, wherever it was. I remember in the very early days of WYL, uh, going around with team members and we would just canvas neighborhoods. We had these doorknob, uh, you know, hangers, which we felt like was so, you know, so smart, so brilliant because we were housing, right? So the, the little doorknob hangers, we would go around uh, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, hang them up on people's doors and it would say, rate your landlord. And it, it, what's funny about it is we'd come outside days later and we'd see them flying all over the neighborhood and stuff. Um, but you have to do that grunt work. A lot of it's not scalable in the beginning, yeah, but you yeah. do it because, you know, people, it's like the idea of if you're, if you're out, if your car, you know, kirks out and you're on the side of the road, like 
nobody just gets out of their car and helps you move a car that's just sitting there. But if they see you pushing it, the idea is, oh, let me help that person push the car, right? Mm -hmm. So I I love that energy uh, and that fervency like very early on. Um, When you think about the skills gap, you know, obviously you both, you're addressing a huge problem here, right? Like I mentioned with Tom, the, 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 what the CEO of Wells Fargo said last week, effectively being like, it, there's no, there's, it's hard to find black talent, right? Um, which would then lead to many black people closing their Wells Fargo accounts and taking their business elsewhere. But for, for you guys and thinking about, you know, that's the skills gap or the opportunities gap, these two things that kind of work together. Um, how do you assess that for the students you work with? Like, is a lot of the work you guys do focusing on, you know, um, placement or, or do you find that still, no matter what the root is, the, the skills, and then from there, placement is secondary. How do you guys, you know, think through that? And I'll, I'll just lob that one up to, to either of you. Jess, you want to take that and I'll, I'm happy to jump in after you. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really important to note that American Tech only works with low uh, to moderate income stu- uh, populations, right? So our students, you know, they're living in low income communities. Um, they're attending schools that are severely underfunded and they have all of the passions in the world to want to make it and to want to, you know, pursue um, strong careers. But unfortunately, given the circumstances that they were born into or the neighborhoods that they're from or the zip codes that, you know, they live in, a lot of times those opportunities are far and few between. And when I think about, um, you know, our work, there are two things that really come to mind. One, um, there's a statistic that says 77% of jobs within the next five years are going to require technical skills, and that 65% of Generation Z is going to hold jobs that have not even been invented yet. And so if that is the case, right, and that affects our overall population in the United States overall, that means that it's going to disproportionately affect the students that we're working with, right, who oftentimes don't have computer science education in their classrooms. When they do have computer science education, it's not always industry aligned. They can't get jobs afterwards. Um, When they do have access to professional development opportunities, it's not intersectional professional development, right? We're talking to them about how to, you know, craft the resume and maybe, um, you know, how to interview appropriately for a job opportunity, but we're not talking about what it's like to do that as a black or a brown person. And so I already think that at the end of the day, um, our students are going to be disproportionately affected by automation. They're going to be disproportionately affected by um, the amount of jobs that are going to just be displaced. Um, and also, they've already been disproportionately affect, uh, affected by the things like COVID-19 and have always historically been impressed um, because of things like racial injustice and economic injustices living in their communities. And so I want to say that because I think it informs everyone of the uh, kinds of challenges uh, that make skills attainment really difficult, right? Like if I'm thinking about how to put food on my table, if I'm trying to figure out where my mom is because I haven't seen her all day and I'm trying to figure out, you know, how, um, you know, I'm gonna uh, apply to college or how I'm going to pay for this after school program, then there's a possibility that skills won't ever be developed, right? And so the way that we see our work is very much about a holistic approach to a student, right? We don't just teach students how to code at America on Tech. We're not just teaching them about UX design or product or data or cybersecurity, right? For us, the core components of our programs are really informed by how do you actually invest in the whole child, right? Because it does take a village to raise one. And the way that we do our work is like, we're trying to accomplish four things with them. One, we're trying to provide them with 
the development on the technical side, but we're also trying to align them with mentors in the field. We're also trying to make sure that we are aligning them with employers and hiring managers. And we're also trying to make sure that we are um, placing them in internships and jobs that show that they can actually succeed in this industry. Outside of those four outcomes of how we actually measure the successes of our programs, though, we're also educating parents, right, so that they ensure that they are um, creating conditions to support computer science and technology education in the home. We're also working with teachers to make sure that they have the capacity, if they wanted to, to access our curriculums and get that into the hands of students that we can't always serve given the capacity of our programs. And we're also making sure that we are um, we're sitting uh, in at tables uh, when advocacy comes around, um, when we're actually trying to make sure that the young voices, uh, the voices of young people are part of the solutions that are government and our public entities are actually developing in the process. And so I actually, um, you know, find it hard sometimes to talk about the skills gap without talking about the opportunity gap, without talking about all of the things that make these things hard to do, um, because, you know, we think sometimes that it's just a matter of training students and then they should be okay if they get a job. But that's not the case, especially with our students who have various levels of oppressions that they're dealing with on a daily basis that make it doubly equal, uh, doubly difficult, like even quadruple, and granted, these are not even real words, but like <laughs> four or five times yeah. more hard uh, to even get a seat at the table. So. Okay, so and I Oh, I want to, well, I want to, I want you to answer that too, but I want to ask, because in hearing Jessica, in hearing you talk about that, what I initially think about is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like the basic things we need to survive as human beings. And when they're not being met, it's, 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 it's unconscionable to think that we, we would, we would be able to focus without those needs being met. So, you know, Tom talked earlier at GA about mindset shift, right? And I think, you know, there's all these oppressive forces against these children, against their families that are working without sometimes they even, them even seeing them. Um, but, 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 and I, I want you maybe to address this too, Ev, you know, how do you guys go about shifting the mindset to realize, like, understanding, you know, a lot of the, the a lot of what you're talking about is survival. Like, we need to survive before anything else is layered on top of that, right? But, but how do you, you know, inform these students um, and their parents that, you know, keeping up is survival? Like, if they're not plugged into technology, if they're, if they're not able to land these jobs that can create even sustaining capital before wealth, like, th this is survival too, you know, maybe, maybe layer that into your answer as well, Ev, but how do you guys address that? Yeah, certainly. So I would say the, the first thing that we do when it comes to educating the parents, or not educating, I don't like to use the word educating, informing them parents, and, and then also informing the students and exposing them to what we are trying to show them is data, right? So before programs kick off, we have parent orientation. Before student programs kick off, we have student orientation. And those student orientations are not just an onboarding. It's also an information session where we're going over stats and statistics in regards to employment rates, salaries for, for current states to future states. So we're really trying to inform them, but also putting in a visual perspective why learning certain skill sets, both hard and soft, are critical to one's current state and future state. Right. And I think from there, that's when you allow the individual to make an informed decision and to find their own intrinsic motivation to want to learn the content that you're going to put in front of them. And so we are very, um, how can I say, 
very intentional about making sure that we don't just teach the skills up front, but we're, we're giving the individual, either the parent, the student, or whatever the stakeholder is that's in front of us, the information needed first before we deploy the content that we've developed that's going to educate, I mean, inform and, and, and uplift. And so I would say from that's what we first do. And then secondly, I would say, you know, what we were also mentioning in your, in your, in your statement was like, this is survival, right? And, uh, and kind of to pivot the conversation just a, a tad is a lot of the times when we talk about our community, you know, we're at a point now where people will say like, oh, this individual had the skills, but they just weren't a culture fit, right? And I think what we've learned is that we're now teaching students skills, but on the other end, what we're teaching students is how to be adaptable, right? But how to be adaptable without losing yourself. And I think that's very important because a lot of people um, sometimes approach adaptability as one of conforming and forgetting who they are. And, and as a result, that's when you start feeling lost within this ecosystem that you're trying to navigate. And so when we're talking to students, we're approaching, approaching it to them from the sense of like, hey, you are who you are. And, and the reality of this world is that there are going to be people that appreciate your uniqueness and there are going to be people that do not appreciate your uniqueness. But what is important is that you find your tribe and within your tribe, that's how you grow, right? Um, and I like to always, I always in the back of my head, I always think about this conversation that I watched um, Maya Angelou and um, Oprah Winfrey having one time on YouTube. I forgot the series, but it was on YouTube. And Maya Angelou is telling, uh, Oprah Winfrey was talking about a time that Maya Angelou told her like, listen, honey, it doesn't matter what room you go into, like hold yourself with the highest confidence because essentially your crown has been paid for, right? Mm -hmm ancestors, your parents, the people that have come before you have marched, they've been beaten, they've, they've, they've studied hours, they've saved up capital, whatever the form of, you know, that, that falls up into that formula of like who you are presently, all of that came with some sort of, uh, of effort from people in the past. And as a result, you need to hold yourself with that confidence and understand at a certain point in your life, there's not much you can do to make someone else appreciate you, right? And that kind of leads way to that, that segue of like, you could just be you in this world. And essentially, if other people don't appreciate you, then that's okay. And a lot of times, you know, what I've learned just as a person of color navigating corporate America, navigating the entrepreneurial startup ecosystem, is that sometimes, you know, also I would say these these differences that people try to uh, signify out as, a, as, as areas of, of difference are sometimes uh, competitive advantages, right? So these, these differences sometimes are a lens to a competitive advantage, a way of thinking, a way of doing, a way of approaching that traditionally the, the masses within that room wouldn't approach a, a, a situation. So within that case, because you're approaching it differently, because you come from a different background, because your, your vocabulary is different, your accent is different, the way you grew up, the, the, your preferred eating uh, meal is different. These all lend to a competitive advantage depending on, you know, the situation that you're in. And we try to take all of these different lived experiences and package them up so that students can see that they're actually unique, that they actually are bright, and that the future is one of, you know, opportunity for them. But it's also important for them to, to, to adapt a, a growth mindset within this development as well. It's all positive because I get passionate about this, but we, we, we're really, um, we really try to be dynamic in a way that we are educating the students. It's not just technology. It's not just code. It's not just UX. We're really approaching it from a, a, a life cycle as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. No, I, I love that. I love that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's 
the irony of you bringing up that concept of your crown is paid for. I don't know why it triggered, uh, you know, earlier today for me, that, that phrase self-made like played in my head. And, and I, I don't like that phrase because I think it's actually it's absolutely false for many people, not for everybody, um, because of exactly what you got to talking about. And in my mind, I was like, you know, there's kind of two forces I give a lot of credit to as to why I could never say I'm self-made. And I don't know if that's like, I don't know if it's 60% on me and then the 40% gets split between those two, but the two would be family and friends who have poured into you to, to help create the environments for you. Sometimes even, sometimes it can even be tougher environments to see the, the, the opportunities, right? So it's not always just like all this love was poured into you. Sometimes, you know, what spurs that growth is actually when you're, you're absolved of certain things um, or lacking in certain things. The other piece of it though, too, is society. Like all the people that have come before me to create the spaces where you can walk in these rooms and I, I, I'm not getting rocks thrown at me. You know, like I, you can walk into these schools and it's not lines of white people telling me I don't belong here. Other people paid their dues for me to even be able to breathe this air. So how could I ever say I'm self-made as a result? And I think what you guys are speaking to leans, on, leans in on that concept. From your vantage point, you know, what has it been like when, so Evan, you're talking a little bit about this, right? Like, let's say a, a student has, leaves a program, they, they go and they apply for a job, they're working somewhere, and it's not a fit, right? When those moments have happened, how do you guys build that person up? Or what, what are some of the questions, the discovery questions you're asking to learn? Is it just not a cultural fit? Is it not a, um, is it not a you know, is, is there other issues there? Like, how do you guys unpack that? for the student to help them keep their dignity, keep their pride, and hold their head up high for the next opportunity. Certainly. Yes, you want to keep the same format? You can go and then I'll jump in. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, that's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. So every single year, um, we actually uh, disseminate an annual alumni survey. And what this survey does is that it is a tool for us to mine, because we have a lot of alumni now. Um, so the one-to-one the -one conversations are a little bit more difficult to have, but this, this tool is, um, what it does, it enables us to surface the challenges that our students are facing in um, computer science programs at two-year or four-year universities, as well as uh, the, the kinds of things that they are experiencing in the workforce. So outside of the demographic information that we are pulling um, about, you know, their first name, their last name, zip code, family income, stuff like that, we're also getting an accurate view um, as to like what is actually going on with our students. And so when I think about the students in our program that have gone off into the industry, a lot of times they do report back imposter syndrome. A lot of times they do report back not feeling like it's a culture fit. Some of them have really expressed an interest in entrepreneurship and wanting to build their own products and services. And for those students, what we've done is that we've set aside like, you know, focus groups to say, okay, what is actually going on here that is causing them to say these things? And I will say that in every single situation, I think the, 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 the entity that is culpable is not the student, right? So there's nothing wrong with the student. I actually think that there is something um, inherently wrong about HR systems and cultures of inclusion at companies and how those systems um, create little accountability to ensure that black and brown people, people from marginalized backgrounds who are operating in spaces of innovation feel like they have a seat at the table. Because if I'm from a, um, if I'm from, you know, a disadvantaged community and now I'm in a company where all these people have attended Ivy 
these schools where all these people, you know, have uncles and aunties that have started tech companies that have exited. And now they're here as the engineers that have been coding since 12, but I've only been coding since America on tech when I was 17. I'm already going to feel behind. And I think it's incumbent on companies to see our students as culture ads as opposed to culture fits. And I think when the systems that the companies um, use to onboard students, to include students, to uh, train students, um, to make them feel like they're included, then I think that that is when that can somewhat be solved. But the real issue here is whether or not um, at the individual level, uh, if I'm an employee who is working with an American sex student, am I seeing this student as an opportunity for me to grow them and develop them? Or am I just thinking they're not a valuable asset to my team? And then on the corporate side is, you know, do I want to make an investment um, in young people that don't fit a traditional mold? Um, and I think those two entities truly need to be um, held accountable and like how they actually show up in the space because the students themselves, since we've worked with them for such a long time, we have an understanding of their characters and the way that they show up and the possibilities that they're and the things that they're able to achieve, but we can't necessarily um, change the HR systems at companies, right? What we can do is introduce you to very talented people, provide you with an opportunity to hire them, um, but it's also incumbent on the private sector to share culpability and making sure that they create the environments that are conducive for our young people to succeed. Um, in terms of what we've done, though, is, um, you know, we have a network of volunteers, we have a network of mentors, um, and a network of instructors who really care about our students are genuinely invested in them. So in the moments where our students are trying to, you know, practice for interviews, making sure that, um, you know, they need to, they're having an issue at work, we're always connecting them with folks who've been there and done that. And all it does, all we have to do is send an email to uh, our dedicated volunteer list, and we always get people who are willing to help in some way or form. Another thing that we've done is that um, this year we're launching affinity groups for our students, right, specifically for our black and brown students um, they're going to be participating in strong intersectional professional development that talks about how do you interview as a person of color and how do you uh, make sure that your resume um, looks a certain way you know based on your experiences as a person of color and how do we make sure that we talk to you about topics like code switching, right? Because these are things that all all things that we've done, but now we're actually professionalizing it more since we're in our sixth year and we have a robust alumni network. So um, to be honest with you, it's more of right now an art than a science. Um, sure. The tech space is extremely uh, methodological um, in the way that they approach things. But when you're working with students and you're working in community, you have to design um, for that set of students, you also have to give them voice um, to make sure that they are empowered to be a part of that design process. And so for us, it's using, um, you know, our survey tool on an annual basis and then our informal conversations with alumni to actually inform us of our, of our ways forward mm -hmm. and holding ourselves accountable to making sure those outcomes get achieved. It, you know, that makes me think of two things, because um, I'm glad and it's like you stole the question out of my head in terms of what I was going to ask next. But I was thinking a lot about that idea of affinity groups. Right. Um, so first, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit and just and, and add this one anecdote and set, you know, Jane Elliott, uh, famous author and, and professor. But she had she had those videos from like the I believe the 70s and 80s that have gone viral in the recent like five to 10 years um, where she asked questions like, you know, in front of her all white class effectively. 
um, who in here, you know, thinks that black people have it worse in America and people don't really raise their hand. And then she effectively asked them, okay, well, who in here would trade places with a black person in America? And again, like no one, or stand up if you would, and no one stands up. So she goes, inherently, then you know something's wrong about how black people are treated in this country. Um, and so, and she does this experiment, like blue eye, brown eye tests. And she had already been teaching these young kids, you know, they're, 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 they're her students um, for quite a, time, quite a time in the school year. And uh, then one day they walk into class and blue-eyed kids go over here, brown-eyed kids go over here. And she tells the brown-eyed kids effectively, you're not as smart as the blue-eyed kids. Um, you're, you don't belong like the blue-eyed kids belong. And she watched her students, it was an experiment, right? And she watched her students that were doing very well, that were the brown-eyed students plummet in terms of their abilities, right? They were now failing tests. They were now, they didn't, they wouldn't even start the homework. It, it was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And it spoke to the idea that if the dignity isn't there, if the people feel like they're less than because you've told them they are, they will do what people that are less than then do. And she used that example to highlight that America has let, gra gravely let down black and brown people because for 400 plus years, you've been telling them they're, they're not worthy, they're less than. And so, you know, it, what you were saying initially makes me think of that. But then when I think about the affinity piece of this, you know, a lot of times, especially in the industry we're talking about, we're talking about technology, you know, many times when we get there as black and brown people, we are one of not many. Um, and so we start practicing this thing called exceptionalism, where we're, we, we, we grow into being comfortable being the only one. And if we see someone else who looks like us, it's actually a threat. It's like, yo, I'm the black guy. <laughs> like, I did that already, right? How do you guys encourage an environment of, and, and you guys too, as human beings, do this every single day. I mean, just for folks at home to understand, they, they, Evan and Jess live in my inbox, whether that's through IG or through email with opportunities, things that are happening. We've met up in person to talk about these kind of things. So they live what they're espousing today. How do you impart that on the students you guys are working with to say, hey, look, you have to look out for one another in these spaces in order for us to win as a collective versus feeling like, you know, feeling threatened, like there's competition there. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Um, you know, one thing that was told to me very early is that like your network is your net worth. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was told to me, uh, particularly when I was in high school. And so from um, a leadership perspective, you know, my interaction with the students are not day to day as it was in the beginning. Uh, our program team handles day to day, but that is something that I try to impart on them that their network is their net worth. But most importantly, I try to talk to them about the, the importance of having a network that is diverse. And I use it from a, a more tangible perspective of what is relatable to them. We're collectively in this class, there's about 30 of us. Within this 30 students, you have about 12 to 20 different high schools across the five boroughs, right? So the access that you have as a student in, in this high school in Brooklyn, maybe a little different than the access that a student has in the Bronx and the Queens and Staten Island. But collectively, if you build that network, you can all share that information together. So as a unit, you're now able to operate in, a, in an advancement together, right? In a more advanced stage together. So, you know, through the conversations that I have with the students, more so now like in, you know, uh, guest speech, speeches or one-on-one -on -one from a mentor-mentee relationships with the ones that I adapt, these are the things that I try to coach them on. And I know for, for, for truth that it works because this is what was told to me and this is what I've, I've applied in my life, right? Like I know my network is my net worth, but most importantly, I know that, you know, collectively, right? 
America on Tech is successful because of Jessica and Evan and our team and our board of directors. America on Tech wouldn't be successful if it was just Evan operating in a silo, right? So again, that is a real life use example of like me knowing collectively what I'm saying is truth. And I tried to install that in the students very early in high school, but through the trajectory of them being in high school all the way through, you know, college and uh, with us through AOT, like those soft things of like understanding that and understanding the collective power as a unit. Uh, and Jess, would you add anything there? Yeah, and, and there are also more intense, there are also very intentional things that we do in the design of our programs, like all of our um, programs are competition based and project based and the students are not working on individual projects, they're working on group projects. And so they're learning the value of teamwork, they're learning the value of being an accountable team member through our programs. I would also say that very early on in our programs, they learn during student orientation, what our values are and our values are impact, both mind spec community and respect and part of our community value is that you understand that regardless of whether you're from the Bronx or you're from Brooklyn or you're black or you're brown or you uh, uh, went to you know uh, a summer program at Brown but at the end of the day you're still in New York City you're still in high school and you're still very much in need of support wherever it is that you can get it um, and I think that reframing that and actually having the design of the program itself um, forced them to have to like get to know each other and then also respect each other and work on things together. They automatically start, um, you know, building those relationships with one another. Another cool thing about our program is we're not just tech, we're also taking the students to really amazing site visits. Now our site visits are happening virtually with our corporate partners. Um, but, you know, even through our field trips and our career days with students, we're taking them to the NBC Universals of the world, the Faxes of the world, the Googles of the world, and on the buses and on the trains, you know, they are getting to know each other um, during those sessions. And so they really already build a community. And the last thing I'll say is that we also use technology to build that community as well. So all of our classrooms um, for the students are available online. And so the cool thing about classrooms is that um, they allow you to post different resources and so you'll notice that there are threads going on all of the time where students are sharing scholarships with one another deadlines with one another and that doesn't just happen for the current students that also happens for the alumni of our um, programs as well so um, i think the design of the program itself also lends them to have to be accountable to making sure that they are um, not seeing one a person as the magical uh student right at the end of the day we're all um uh, we're all cut from the same cloth and you know some of us have may have gotten more opportunities than others but at the end of the day it's us it's incumbent on us to um, lean on each other because at, even if even if you don't want to do it from a social perspective um, from a moral perspective and from just a good business perspective you never know who's going to be able to hire you at the end of the day so sometimes even if you have to talk to them like that they'll be like oh okay this person maybe will one day employ me so maybe i should be kind I think that also resonates with them too. Nah, for sure, for sure. Um, and you know, what you were saying made me think a lot about uh, something Tom had mentioned earlier where he mentioned that for GA, you know, the, the age group is tends to be mid 20s to mid 30s. Your age group tends to be, you know, the grade school students, high school students going into the co college or the workforce. Um, and, you know, this is like four years ago. I wanna, it was at launch, uh, the big event that uh, Jason Calacanis throws, the angel investor out of the Bay Area. And I remember meeting Mohammed Masakwa, who was a receiver for the, the, the Cleveland Browns at the time. We connected, we became really cool. And I was talking to him about getting athletes to invest in tech. 
and he was like, um, you know, he's like, that's, he's like, it's funny, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard because these guys have liquid money, right? He's like, but he's like, outside of, if you know, if you're LeBron James, you're LeBron James, nobody's going to question what you do off the court. He's like, or, you know, but he's like, look at what happened with Melo, really. With Melo, he had, you know, I think it was M7 Ventures and was getting a little bit of heat for not being too focused on the court, was focusing on other things. But we said all that to say, he said when he, what he was finding, and I think I think Evan, I think you mentioned this earlier, he was finding that a lot of the players still had a very, very much a, a user mentality, like user of tech, not a creator's mentality. So before we could even get them to the point of investing in technology, he had this idea of just boarding them on buses and taking them to all the Bay Area, you know, the big corporations like the Twitters and Facebooks of the world, and touring these facilities, learning what it takes to build these technologies, so we're not always consuming it but instead we're helping create it. And so I, I love uh, the, the, the parallels there with a lot of what you guys said tonight. Jess, Ev, where can people find you guys online and how can they stay connected? Um, they can find us at America on Tech. Uh, they can find us on LinkedIn. We have a website, Instagram, Twitter. That's the handle, at America on Tech. Um, you can also find Evan and I on LinkedIn, just Jessica Santana. And then Evan is Evan Robinson on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks for joining us for this amazing episode of WYL Take Ownership Podcast, where we're all about taking ownership of your mental, your economics, and your community. Have a good one, y'all. Peace.